Uh, the Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Uh, there's spare Bibles up on the back table if you'd like to use one of those. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Well, I was coming up this morning and I brought my sat-nav with me. She was sitting next to me in the car. I know my way here now, thankfully, because she was trying to take me to the old St. Andrew's Church Hall, which is where you had your beginnings. <laughs> uh, so I need to update that sat-nav. <laughs> She's about 20 years out of date, I think, isn't she? <laughs> anyway, it's good we found our way here this morning. And um, we're, we're looking uh, at these three occasions when, uh, when Peter says no to Jesus. And uh, you, you noticed it, I'm sure, in the reading this morning from John chapter 13. No, Lord. Have you ever said that uh, to Jesus? No, Lord. I mean, how crazy is that to call him Lord and then to contradict him in the same breath? What a silly thing to do. What a senseless thing to say. No, Lord. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Either he's Lord or he's not. And uh, if he's Lord of your life, you don't say no to him, do you? Or maybe you do. Like Peter here in our passage today. Look at verse 8. That's our text, really, this morning. No, Lord, no, he says to Jesus, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Never, ever. Literally what he says, Not to all eternity will you wash my feet. We might say, not in a million miles, not in a million years will you wash my feet. And that's the second time that Peter says no to Jesus. As we saw last week in Caesarea Philippi, he said no to the cross. Now he's saying no to having his feet washed. 
At Caesarea Philippi, he wanted Christianity without the cross. A lot of people today want Christianity without the cross, don't they? He wanted to cancel out the cross. And now he wants Christianity without cleansing, without being washed by Jesus, without conversion, because that's really what we're talking about, personal cleansing. And that's not possible. And I want to show you that this morning. Uh, so let's, let's, if you look at that with me, uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Uh, it's such a famous scene, isn't it? It's one of the most familiar scenes in John's gospel. It's been ritualized and dramatized and, and acted out every Easter all around the world. And it's inspired great works of art, like uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, famous painting of the Last Supper. Uh, some people, like uh, Dan Brown, for example, uh, have seen in that painting a hidden meaning. Uh, people are fascinated, aren't they, by conspiracy theories, especially if they discredit biblical Christianity, or so they think. But I want to say to you this morning, there is a hidden meaning in that scene. Uh, Jesus says so, doesn't he, in verse 7. Do you notice that? He says to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now. But afterwards, you will understand. In other words, there is a hidden meaning here. Not apparent now, but it will become apparent later. John's Gospel is a bit like that. Um, it's uh, multi-layered. It speaks to us at a, a number of different levels. You might have noticed that if you've read through John's Gospel. It's, in some ways, it's quite different to the other Gospels, isn't it? Uh, there are different layers of meaning. Not that these are arbitrarily imposed on the text by the reader, but deliberately intended by the author. There's so much. This is the only talk I prepared from scratch for this series for you. And I had great problems deciding what to leave out of this talk because there's so much in this passage. But I want you to see just three things this morning. A portrait, verses 1 to 5. A parable of salvation, verses 6 to 11, and a pattern, a pattern for us to follow, verses 12 to 17. A portrait, a pattern, a portrait, a parable, and a pattern. So first of all, do you see how Jesus, uh, how John, is, John portrays Jesus there in, in the opening verses, particularly in verses 1 to 5? You know, he, he, writing years later, decades later perhaps, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with the benefit of hindsight. He thinks back to that eventful evening and, and he sets the scene for us in these, these opening verses. Look at verse one. It's just before Passover, he says. That's so significant, especially in John's gospel. It, it, that's, that's a theme that keeps coming up again and again and again. It's just before Passover. This is the Passover meal that John is describing in the upper room. And, and it's before, just before Passover, we're told, and, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world, to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see that there in verse 1, the opening verse. There's so much there, even in that opening verse, isn't there? In other words, he showed them the full extent of his love. That's, that's what this is. It's a, it's a demonstration of Jesus' love for his own. It's a portrait of the love of Jesus for his people. It's a picture of love on its knees. See, that's what love does. 
Think of a mother's love for her children. Is she proud? Is she proud to her children? No, never. She's proud of her children, but she'll never be proud to her children, not if she loves them. Love is not proud. Love is not puffed up. Love does not stand on its dignity. Even, even the most powerful, high-flying executives gets down on his knees to play with his grandchildren, doesn't he? It, it's what love does. And that's what Jesus demonstrates in the upper room on the night before he goes to the cross. He knows that his hour has come. Again, that's a great theme through John's Gospel. The, the time is not yet. The hour has not yet come. Again and again and again he says that. But now the hour has come and he knows it. The hour has come for him to lay down his life as the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. The hour has come and he knows it. He knows that the time has come for him to go to the cross, to leave this world and go to the Father, it says. He knows, verse 3, that, that, that the Father has given all things into his hand and that he has come from God and was going back to God. He knows who he is. And knowing all this, knowing who he is, and knowing what he has come into the world to do, and knowing that the hour has now arrived, Verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of his disciples. And why did he do that? Because he wanted to demonstrate to them the extent to which he loved them. Love doesn't stand on ceremony, does it? Love gets down on its knees to meet the needs of its loved ones. And that's what, that's what you see here. That's the hidden meaning in this painting. What brought this great one, the one uh, to whom God gave all authority in heaven and earth, the one who, who spoke the worlds into being at the beginning, the one who is the, the, the one who's going to inherit uh, everything? What, what, what brought this great one down from heaven to earth? What brought him from the Father's bosom to the feet of sinners? What brought him to the cross? It's love, isn't it? It wasn't the nails that held him there, the old, the old hymn says. Remember that old, I think it was probably a Sankey hymn. It wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love, his love for you and for me. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the limits. He loved them to the bitter end, we could say. And that's what he's showing them here, even just before it's going to happen. He did not consider, this is the best commentary on John chapter 13, it's Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider it equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself, made himself nothing, took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I don't know if you remember that, or that movie that came out based on the life of a, of a Jesuit missionary by the name of Joseph Damien. Do you remember that movie, Molokai, I think it was called? Joseph uh, Damien was a 19th century missionary who uh, ministered to people with leprosy. He went to a leper's colony on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. I don't know if you saw that movie. Probably can still get it out some way. Uh, 
One morning when he was shaving, ready to, to, to lead them in worship on the Sunday morning, he accidentally spilt some scalding hot water onto his bare foot. It took him just a moment to realize that he hadn't felt anything. Realizing what this might mean, he poured more boiling water on the same spot. Not feeling, no feeling whatsoever. That morning at church, he opened the service, not with his usual words, you know, dearly beloved or something like that. But that morning when he went to church in that leper's colony, he, he said, my fellow lepers, my fellow lepers. What a demonstration of, of love. To go, in, to go in the first place, to go and, and live in a leper's colony. <laughs> and then to die as a leper for the sake of those people. What a demonstration of love. But it pales into, into nothing compared to what Jesus is about to do for his own. Doesn't it? Numbered with the transgressors, he goes to the cross. The friend of sinners. Numbered with the transgressors. And on that cross, Paul tells us, he became sin for us. He was not personally a sinner. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin. There's an old hymn we used to sing a long time ago. And there's a line in the hymn which I think captures it so, so beautifully. Almost kind of controversially. It's almost on the, sometimes these hymns, it's almost on the brink of heresy actually. It sounds like it. How willing was Jesus to die that we fellow sinners might live? There's a sense in which Jesus, my fellow lepers, my fellow sinners, there's a sense in which Jesus took sin upon himself in going to the cross. He became sin for us. Everything that he hated, everything that's unclean, everything that's filthy in our lives, he became sin for us. He who knew no sin, my fellow sinners. How willing was Jesus to do that for us? How willing was Jesus to die that we fellow sinners might live? The life that they could not take away. How willing was Jesus to give? So what you have here is, in the first place, is a very beautiful portrait of, of Jesus. The servant king. Stooping to meet the needs Stooping to meet us in our need. It sort of prefigures Calvary, doesn't it? It's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. It's a picture of love on its knees. How far will Jesus go to meet our needs? And the answer is all the way. All the way to the cross. And here's the second thing that I want you to see. All, all who are loved by Jesus are washed by Jesus. You see that here in that little interchange. It's almost an amusing interchange isn't it, between Jesus and Peter in verses 6 to 11. And it's, it's a parable. It's a parable of salvation. Jesus says to Peter in verse 8, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that's not about hygiene. It's about holiness. It's a parable. Jesus is taking... Uh, the social conventions of the day, and he's using that to preach the gospel to Peter and to us. 
See, the streets of Jerusalem were filthy, not only with dirt and mud, but probably sewerage as well. And it was a thousand times worse at Passover, when the city swelled to five times its usual size. So on arrival, they would wash their feet, or rather someone would do that for them. The lowest slave, the household slave. And, and Jesus says to Peter, let me do that for you. Brother, let me be your servant. Let me wash your dirty, smelly feet. And that's too much for Peter, isn't it? He's absolutely horrified. Literally, literally, he says, what? You? My feet? Never. Not in a million years. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, unless I do, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Literally, no share in me. It's the, same, it's the same word that's used in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember when the, the younger son goes to his father and he says, Father, I want, I want my share. My share of the inheritance. It's the same word that's used. Give me my share. In, in the Old Testament, the tribes were told, you know, when they came into the promised land, they were promised a share a part in that inheritance, in, in the promised land. It's the same word that is used there. It's the same word that's used in the book of Revelation uh, to, to, to describe having a, a share, a part in the tree of life, in the holy city. It's the same word that's used there. And Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part in me. You're going to miss out big time, Peter, unless you let me wash you. In other words, if, if you recoil from what I'm doing now, then you are rejecting the very principle on which my kingdom is founded. If my washing of your feet offends your pride, how much more am I dying on a cross? If you think it's beneath my dignity to wash your feet, how can I go to a cross to wash away your sin? It's a powerful sermon he's preaching to Peter, isn't it? As he stoops to Peter's feet. If you're too proud to let me wash your feet, how will you ever accept my death on your behalf as an atoning sacrifice for your sin? If I don't wash you, you have no part with me, no fellowship with me, no share in what I've come to do for you. Friends, let me ask you, because it's easy to read this chapter, isn't it, and see the example. And that's the way a lot of people... That's the way a lot of people take this event, as an example. And we'll get to that, because it is an example for us to follow. But it's easy to miss the main point, isn't it? Let me ask you, do you know what it is to have your sins washed by Jesus? Have you come to him for cleansing? Like the, see, there's so many... Uh, uh, Chris asked me last week, are there any hymns or songs that you know that go with this talk? And thankfully, I hadn't prepared the talk. Otherwise, I would have had at least a dozen, probably two dozen or more. There's so many. <laughs> Rock of ages cleft from me. Remember the line in that? Foul, I to the fountain fly. Oh, that's too much, isn't it? Foul? You're saying I'm foul? Foul, I to the fountain fly. Have you done that? Have you, have you seen the foulness of your sin? The pollution? of your sin and has it have you have you fled to the cross for, for, for cleansing or is or are you too proud for that 
I'm reminded of the story of the man who came home drunk every night and his wife had to put him to bed. And, and one night as she tucked him in, she prayed, Lord, I pray for my husband who lies here drunk. And a voice came out from under the blankets, don't tell him I'm drunk, tell him I'm sick. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, how, how we've kind of, we're embarrassed about all these hymns that talk about the foulness of sin and vile, vileness of the sinner and, uh, and the need for being washed in the blood of Jesus. The denomination I was brought up in, they started editing all that out of the hymn book. Don't tell him I'm drunk, tell him I'm sick. Even a drunk has his pride. See, and, and, and that's our problem too, isn't it? It was Peter's problem. He's too proud to admit that he's got a problem. Are you? Many of us are just like that. We refuse to admit that we need to be cleansed and washed and made fit for the company of Jesus. It's too humbling, isn't it? And pride is very subtle. It takes many, many forms. It can invert itself. You see, most of, us, most of us, like Peter, are more comfortable with what we can do for Jesus than what he can do for us. Isn't that right? We're quite happy serving a church, but we actually, we're a bit uncomfortable to be served. Isn't that right? You see that happening in a lot of churches. It's inverted pride, and it destroys fellowship. See, Christianity is not what you do for Jesus. It's what he has done for you. Brother, let me be your servant. That's where it begins. And unless you're prepared for that to happen in your life, well, you haven't even begun to understand. Unless I wash you, Jesus says. Unless you let me do that for you. Unless, unless you let me go to the cross and shed my blood as an atonement for your sins so that you are made clean in God's sight. Unless, you, unless I wash you. Do you see how he's preparing them for the, what's coming the next day? You have no part in me. At which point Peter does a massive backflip, doesn't he? He's so characteristic of Peter. Uh, he does this sort of thing all the time. Look at verse 9. He said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, he says. So typical of Peter, isn't it? Uh, he flip-flops all over the place from, from one extreme to the other. Uh, don't you love him? <laughs> I mean, first he protests about being washed at all, and then he asks for a bath. When all he needs is, is to have his feet washed. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't need another bath. You only need to wash your feet. So if, if you're going out for, for dinner somewhere, you, you'd, 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 presumably you'd have a bath or a shower before you went out, wouldn't you? You wouldn't sort of turn up at your friend's house and say, oh, excuse me, no, I need the bathroom. Have you got a towel for me? You might wash your hands. We're very good at washing our hands now because of COVID, aren't we, before we eat. You'd probably wash your hands before you sat down for a meal, but you wouldn't have a, insist on having a bath. See, when they sat down, uh, you, you, see, you only need to wash your hands well, in this case, of course, it was their feet, because when they sat down for dinner, they, they didn't tuck their feet neatly out of sight under the table. Uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci got that wrong. They sat on the floor and they stuck their feet in each other's faces. So they definitely needed to have their feet washed. And so do we as we walk through the dirty streets of this world, don't we? It's a parable. 
Jesus is speaking in language that they can understand, but he's speaking about salvation and he's pointing them to the cross and he's showing them what he's going to do for them. He's showing them their need of salvation. You don't understand now, he says in verse seven, but you will later, later, when later? On the other side of the cross. At the deepest level, that's how we're to understand it. It's a parable of salvation. A.M. Hunter, who is a New Testament scholar, said this. Let me quote from his commentary. He says, there's no place in Jesus' fellowship for those who have not been cleansed by his atoning death. Many people today would like to call themselves Christians but see no need of the cross. They're ready to admire Jesus' life and praise his teachings and even perhaps like Gandhi and others follow his example but they can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus died for their sins. But if you don't believe that, my friends, you've got no part. You've got nothing to do with Jesus. He's got nothing to do with you. Because that's why he came. That's the gospel. There is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness, says the prophet Zechariah. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. That's the gospel. And there's a once and for allness about it so that no one need despair and there's an ongoingness about it so that none of us should be complacent. Do you see? In the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, there is complete cleansing for all your sin, past, present, and future. When you trust in Jesus, he washes you completely from head to toe. And you are clean in God's sight once and for all. And you're well taught in this church, and you understand that. We're talking about justification by faith in Christ. It's a once and for all thing, and you're clean. Once you trust in Jesus, it's as if you had never sinned. You've had a bath. You're regenerate. You're born again. You don't have to be born again and again and again. You're born again. You're justified in his sight. You're clean in the sight of God. When God looks at you, he, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son. That's justification. It's once and for all. But what we're not so good at is having our feet washed. You see, Peter's confusing two things here doctrinally, justification and sanctification, isn't he? There's an ongoingness about this washing as well. As you walk through the dirty streets of this world every day, you need to keep, we need to keep Short accounts with God. We're not so good at that. If, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's, that's the bath. When we come to him, we, we know that it's not, it's not that we, we, we can deserve it or anything. He is faithful and just. And he will forgive us. But, and then he says, and he, will, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the ongoingness of our salvation. There's a once and for allness about it, but there's an ongoingness about it. You see that in the life of Isaiah, don't you? He'd been a prophet for many years. He'd been preaching 
prophesying in the name of God. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, a few years after he'd started, he says, he, he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, and he says, woe is me, I'm, undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's, he's convicted of his sin in the presence of God, in the presence of the holiness of God and the majesty of God. He's convicted of his sin. And do uh, you remember what happens? An angel comes and takes a live coal from the altar to touch his lips. That's the ongoingness. That's what you and I need. That's what I need when I get up to preach. I need that atoning sacrifice to be applied to my lips as I speak to you. You think of David, you know, who lived, lived alive for 18 months after that terrible encounter, you know, with Bathsheba and, uh, and Uriah, the, her husband, and... and you remember 18 months he lived a lie with unconfessed, unforsaken sin in his life until in Psalm 51 he comes clean. Wash me, he says, cleanse me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and, and sinners will be converted to you. See, if we, don't, if we don't have our feet washed, if we don't understand the ongoingness of the cleansing, if we don't keep coming back and confessing our sins regularly and, 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 and putting, the, putting the record straight between us and the Lord, we're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to be of very much use. There's a, a once and for all... John Stott, I think, helpfully puts it like this. He explains it by, by comparing the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a bath, the Lord's Supper is a foot washing, he says. I think that's helpful. You only get baptized once, or you only should get baptized once. There is one baptism, the Bible says. I know sometimes it doesn't work out like that. But you only get baptized once. You should only get what baptized once, because baptism is, 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 is a symbol of the once and for allness of, of your regeneration. You are washed, you, you, you've had a bath. And baptism is, is the sign of that, the outward sign of that. But you come to the Lord's table frequently, don't you? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. And every time you come, what do you do? You examine yourselves, don't you? We're told we should do that. Every time we come. Don't confuse these two things. Those who had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And, and you are clean, he says, you notice there. Uh, Though not every one of you. Of course, he's referring to Judas there, isn't he? Verse 11 makes that clear. He knew, who was, he, he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you. Judas scares me. He frightens me. I can so easily see myself doing what he did. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He was there with Jesus day by day. He witnessed the wisdom, kindness, patience, consistency, goodness of Jesus. He was an insider inside the circle of Jesus' disciples. And that's scary, isn't it? Because it's possible to be in church but not in Christ. I can read my Bible, say my prayers, talk the talk, look the part, and not actually be saved. It's possible to be close to Jesus, but not to be washed by Jesus. You, he says, plural, you, you, you're all clean, he says to his disciples, but not all of you. Not every one of you. 
Scary, isn't it? I guess when, when Jesus said, you know, that night in the upper room, one of you will betray me, I think there were 11 frightened men in that room and one man who wasn't frightened. 11 true disciples and the only one who wasn't frightened was Judas. Why? Because the, the devil had already entered into him. He al he'd already made up his mind to betray Jesus, to walk out on Jesus. And maybe that's you here this morning. I was like that in church when I was growing up. I was, I was in church for, for, for many months, many years. As an atheist, I thought, ready and not having enough nerve to walk out. <laughs> but wanting to walk out before the Lord really met with me. If, if, if you're frightened by Judas and, and think to yourself this morning, well, that could so easily be me, let me say to you, that's a good sign if you're frightened. If you're not frightened by Judas, you really ought to be. De decades later, as John writes this gospel, he can still see. see. He can still see Judas going through that door, disappearing into the night. You look at the end just very quickly at the end of the chapter, how the chapter ends in verse 30. He says, he went out and it was night. He went out. But in his heart, he'd gone out long before. He went out surrendering to his greed. He went out in league with the devil to betray his Lord. He went out and it was night. <laughs> How ominous that is. He, he walks away from the love of Jesus, which has been so powerfully demonstrated to them in the upper room that night. He walks out. He walks away from the love of Jesus. He walks, walks away. Jesus has been softly pleading with him during that evening. He walks away from that. He walks away from the possibility of forgiveness. And we watch in horror as he goes out into the darkness of a Christless eternity. So be warned. Don't be a Judas. Make your calling and election sure. So, so we've seen here love portrayed, and we've seen here love betrayed. Now lastly, see here love displayed as an example for us to follow. That's the third thing, a pattern for us to follow. Verses 12 to 17. Look at verse 12. Jesus says to them, do you understand? Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord? Well, I am your teacher and Lord. Do you understand what I've done for you? I've set you an example, he says, that you should do as I've done for you. A sense of occasion. Some people have it, others don't. Like when you turn up at a black tie dinner in board shorts and thongs. Um, or when you turn up at the Last Supper like the disciples here, arguing amongst themselves as to who's the greatest. Because the other gospel writers tell us that's, that's what was happening. It's the night before Jesus was crucified and they've been arguing amongst themselves as to who'll get the top jobs in Jesus' kingdom. Who's going to fill the key positions? James and John have even got their mum to put in a good word for them, we're told, much to the disgust of the others. And as Jesus prepared himself mentally, psychologically, spiritually to go to the cross, to go to that, that holocaust of taking sin upon himself, as Jesus prepared himself to lay down his life for them, they were all jockeying for position, competing and comparing themselves with one another. <laughs> Look what John says in verse 2. He says, the evening meal was being served. 
No, that's in my translation. I think it's the right translation. Uh, the evening meal was being served, John tells us. Normally, people would have their feet washed on arrival, not when the meal is being served. So somebody hasn't done their job. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did. You know the story of those four people, don't you? Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was a job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it, but nobody did. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody knew that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that somebody wouldn't do it. And so everybody blamed somebody because nobody did what anybody could have done. <laughs> well, that's how, it, that's how it was in the upper room that night. And truth be told, that's how it is in many a local church, isn't it? There's a job to be done, but nobody really wants to do it. Somebody ought to have done it. Why didn't they do that? I was, we were in a wedding yesterday, I have to say. We were in a wedding yesterday at St. John's, and uh, we got there a little bit early, and it was freezing. I, had, I kept saying over and over again, to them, why, don't they, why don't they put the heating on? <laughs> There's a job to be done. Nobody wants it. Somebody ought to have done it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did until Jesus got up from the table, wrapped himself in a towel, and stooped down to wash their feet. And he does for them what they're too proud to do for one another. Remember, this is a hired room. There's no household slave present to wash their feet. They're all too full of their own self-importance to do for each other. And so Jesus does it. He who is Lord of all becomes the servant of all. How embarrassing. Twelve red faces glowing in the dark. <laughs> and you could hear a pin drop. The silence is deafening. And breaking the silence, Jesus says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? I've set you an example. At the risk of embarrassing myself and exposing myself to ridicule, that's how I learned to write. Last century, just after the Second World War, on a slate in school with chalk. And the teacher would write a word, in primary, this is primary school, he would write a word on the slate and then you had to copy it underneath. Later on, we were given uh, copy books for the purpose. And Jesus is saying, I want, you to, I want you to do that. I've set you an example. I want you to copy me. In your relationships with one another, in your, in your relationship to the world around you, copy my handwriting. Trace it out. Live it out. Transpose it into your own culture. It'd be very embarrassing if you went around washing everybody's feet. That's not our culture. That's not the need. Transpose it into your own culture, whatever is the equivalent of washing feet, whether it's washing dishes or cleaning toilets or teaching Sunday school, whatever needs to be done. I've set you an example, Jesus says. Uh, Thirty years later, in his first epistle, Peter can still see this scene in his mind's eye. He, he tells his readers, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you. Yes, he, 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 did. he died to wash away your sin. That's the, that's the, the heart of it. He, it's substitutionary atonement. He, he suffered in your place. He suffered for you to wash away your sins. But he also died to leave you an, an example. We get embarrassed about that because we don't want the social gospel, do we? And we're afraid of salvation by works. And we don't like to talk about the cross as an example. But it is. 
Jesus died for you to wash away your sins. That's the most important thing, but to set you an example. And then Peter sees that, doesn't he? He sees Jesus with a towel wrapped around his waist, washing the feet of his disciples. And he says there in chapter 5 of his letter, to the senior leaders and to the young Turks, and often this con- there's this, this, this kind of issues between uh, the senior leaders who won't get out of the way and the young Turks who can't wait to take their place. And, 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 and Peter writing to, the, to these, these people, the, the, the senior leaders, the elders, and the young Turks, the young men, he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's the way I want you to do, church. I've left you an example, Jesus says. So let me wrap this up. I want to ask you then, because this is the theme of these three talks, are you you saying no to Jesus? Is there anything in your life about which the Lord is speaking to you right now? Perhaps even this morning. And at least in your heart, if not out loud, you're saying to him, never, Lord. Not in a million years. Lord, anything else, but don't go there. Don't touch that. It's too embarrassing. And he's saying to you, that's the very thing I want to talk to you about. Maybe you're here this morning, and perhaps, like so many people, you can see the advantages of Christianity. You, You value the ethical standards of Christianity. And you want that for your kids. That's why you send them to the Christian school. But you don't really want a relationship with Jesus yourself as your Lord and Savior. You can't bring yourself to admit that you're a sinner who needs to be washed. But that's the very reason that he came into this world. To wash away your sin. So so don't say no to him. When he comes to the the towel and the basin. Don't say no to him. Don't walk out on him like Judas. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are humbled when we look at your saving love so powerfully demonstrated to us in that passage. We think of the words of that hymn, Lord, I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed at Calvary. Amen.